All right. Good morning. Good morning, Weymouth. Uh, welcome once again to uh, another Sunday together. Thank you for, for joining us here. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to greet you, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're really glad that uh, you, you've joined us this morning for worship. Uh, so let's just take uh, just a few moments in the quiet, in the, the silence of our own hearts to, to, prayer, to pray and prepare our hearts for worship. So please pray with me. David writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. And Father, uh, we praise you this morning because you are uh, far more glorious, far more wonderful. The knowledge of you is, is, is too high. We cannot attain it on our own, but we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made yourself known in your word. You have made a way for us to know you and walk with you and praise you. We praise you because you are present in our midst this morning by your spirit, that you uh, are bringing light even into uh, the darkest places in this world. So Lord, show us your light more clearly, more brilliantly this morning. Help us to praise you in response. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing together. I know your 
All right, well, I want to change it up slightly, invite the kids to come on up to the front now. So any kids in fifth grade or below, you're welcome to come on up front. We'll get into our catechism here. Yeah, well, good to see you. Nice dress. Come up to the front. Have a seat. All right, well, we are moving along here. I think we're going to finish this catechism by the end of the year. What do you guys think? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, welcome. Come on up. I'm glad. Good. Another boy. I'm not outnumbered up here. Well, we're still outnumbered, but it's not as bad. Um, all right, so question number 46. We are talking about uh, what we call in church the, the ordinances, right? We, uh, baptism and communion. We talked about baptism the last couple weeks, and this morning we were talking about communion or the Lord's Supper. So our question says this, what is the Lord's Supper? And the answer is that Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him. So we're getting into the holiday season right here. The holidays are coming up. Now, raise your hand if you know. Get a little hot. Uh, <laughs> you got it? Good job. You got it. Uh, raise your hand if you know what's the big holiday that we still. Keep this with me because. Yeah, so I say it. It's super important. Absolutely. It actually has my. Oh, it has your tag on it. Oh, that's almost as important as Ohio State, your security as a child, right? Um, uh, raise your hand if you know what's the big holiday we celebrate uh, in November. Not this month, but next month. Yeah. Halloween. Yeah, that's this month. What's after that? What's after Halloween? Yeah. Thanksgiving. My grandma's going to take me to Halloween. She is? That's awesome. Yeah. Are you dressing up in costumes? I, I, my grandma's My grandma has a pumpkin princess dress. That's my pumpkin princess dress. That's the same costume I'm wearing. I'm just kidding. That's not actually true. I'm going to be Bluey's dad. Um, uh, Yay. Um, yeah, so after Halloween, we have Thanksgiving, right? Now, when we ha celebrate Thanksgiving, what do we do? What do we celebrate in Thanksgiving? What's the whole point of that holiday? Yes. Um, thanking. Um. No, you're right. Yeah, thanking. Thankfulness, right? It's a time where we gather together with family, with friends. We have a big meal. We eat a bunch. We eat too much food, right? Your dad probably falls asleep on the couch, like turkey. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the rest of people do. <laughs> I watch a Thanksgiving parade. Yeah, I think some people probably do that too. Yeah. You yeah, watch a parade. Right. It's, it's a holiday. It's all about. You do, do you watch that too? That's awesome. It's a holiday. It's all about thankfulness. So when we celebrate that meal, that meal's a time to celebrate and, and to be thankful for all the good gifts we have in our lives and our families well, and our friends. And mommy just went downstairs and I was walking around and mommy was sleeping in the basement. You were sleeping in the basement? Yeah, especially when you eat all that turkey, you fall asleep, right? Your dads will probably do that, watching football or something. That's my uh, dad. Oh, nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. your dad's a cool guy. I like your dad. Uh, right? And so if you think about it, Thanksgiving is a meal that reminds us to be thankful. It's a meal that's centered, it's all about thankfulness. And communion is a similar meal that's all about thankfulness. When we come together to celebrate communion as a church, uh, as a church family, it's kind of like when you come together with your family to celebrate Thanksgiving. What communion is, it's a meal. We take the bread, we take the cup, and those elements, those parts of the meal, they remind us of Jesus' body broken for us, killed for us on the cross, of his blood shed for us to bring us forgiveness of sins. And so part of what we do when we celebrate communion is once a month we have this meal together as a family where we remember the death and, and resurrection of Christ for us, and we, and we take that meal out of thankfulness. It's a chance to remember, to rejoice, to be thankful to God for how he has saved us, how he has rescued us in his son. 
So as you think about once a year, we have this big meal of thankfulness with our families as a church family once a month, usually the first Sunday of the month, we have this meal together as a church family of thankfulness, of remembering what Christ has done for us in his, in his death and his resurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah? So let's pray now and thank God and practice that together. Super sense. I love it. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of, of, our, of our earthly families, but also thank you for the gift of our church family, that we can come together each week to worship you and praise you, and, and, and that we can also come together to, to celebrate the meal of communion, uh, which we do once a month. We thank you for the, the bread and the cup that remind us, that symbolize the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you for the chance we have to regularly remember and be thankful for your goodness and grace to us in the person of your son, Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, great job. So you can go back uh, with your families. You can line up for Children's Church. And, uh, and then uh, we'll keep going here as we go. Uh, before we get into a couple songs, we just have uh, a few, or one more song. We have a few announcements to make you aware of here. Uh, one thing that's coming up is on October 28th, we have our fall festival here at Weymouth, that's going to be a time where we're hope, you know, opening up the doors of the church, the, this facility, the, our, our land, our property to the community, a chance for people to come with, with kids, with families. We're going to have a trunk or treat. We're going to have uh, ambassadors is coming to do a, a, another soccer clinic uh, with us for kids uh, that day. Um, so mark your calendars for that. That's going to be October 28th uh, from uh, 1 to 4 p.m. And, and two things to highlight there is, uh, one, uh, we're still looking for families to sign up for, to do trunk or treat. Uh, you might be planning to do that, you know, to decorate your car, your truck, your van, and to hand out candy. It'd be really helpful for us if you could sign up either online on our website or at the paper in the back just so we know we can plan and we can find spots in the parking lot. So currently I think we have about six or so families signed up. We're hoping to get at least 20. Um, so we could definitely use some more people to sign up for that. So you can go to our website. You can click on the events tab. You can uh, find the event there. You can sign up online, or there's a paper at the back welcome table. Our website is weymouthchurch.com. Uh, so if you're thinking about that, please let us know ahead of time uh, so we can plan accordingly. Uh, and uh, if you have any ideas, uh, if you're looking for ideas on what to do, I'm sure you could ask any of these kids that were up here or myself. We'd love to help you think of ideas for that. So that's one thing. We need more uh, trunk or treat volunteers, uh, people to do that. And then secondly, uh, as I mentioned, uh, we, we're partnering once again with Ambassadors Football, who helped us do our soccer camp back in July. They're going to come and uh, run uh, two 90-minute uh, sessions for a soccer clinic that afternoon for kids ages 6 to 14. Uh, so it's a great chance if you have a kid in that age range to sign up. It's free uh, to do some more soccer, have some fun, run around for 90 minutes, and then go eat a bunch of candy and probably throw up or something. Um, but uh, that's going to be a great time. And if you know, if you have kids, if you have friends, if you have neighbors that like soccer, I think most of the fall soccer seasons are coming to an end here. So it might be a, a chance for them to come and keep playing. So be sure to, to invite other kids and, and families and friends. That's kind of the whole hope of that, right, of that event. Yeah, it'll be a great time for our church family to gather together. But our hope is it's also a great opportunity for the community to come and have some fun and, and see the church and meet some, uh, some Christians and some believers and, and be cared for and be welcomed. Um, so that's coming up October 28th. Um, another thing I have here is we got a note from uh, Garfield Elementary School. Uh, our women's ministry has been doing a good job of collecting, and our church as well, of collecting supplies for them. So they sent us a, a note, a uh, thank you note. I thought I'd just read it. It says this, uh, Dear faithful women of Weymouth, words can express our gratitude for how, you, for how you are and have been serving us by supplying us with snacks, 
The donations have made a real difference as we eat lunch at 11.15 a.m. and our bellies are hungry by 1.30. So thank you for loving us in this way. Love the second graders in Mrs. Peter's class. So for those of you who have been involved in donating and giving supplies for the, the Garfield Elementary School that we've done, thank you for your participation in that. Please continue uh, praying for our local schools, for Garfield, for the other schools in Medina and Brunswick and beyond. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll let you know as we have more opportunities to do that for Garfield and other schools. And uh, kind of along those lines, we didn't have a chance to put this in the bulletin yet, um, but we've uh, recently agreed to participate in the uh, Oasis of Hope uh, annual fundraiser that's happening in November. So Oasis of Hope is a crisis pregnancy center here in Medina. And on November 3rd, they're having a Christmas tree fundraiser, silent auction dinner kind of thing. And so we've agreed to sponsor a tree, which means we've, uh, we, we've bought a tree and then we are responsible for decorating that tree. Um, so on, uh, in the evening of November 1st or the, during the day, November 2nd, there's going to be some time for people to go and go to the hall where the event's going to be, uh, find our tree, decorate our tree, and then during the event, people will, will bid on the tree as part of a silent auction as a way to raise support for this uh, ministry, uh, ministry for people dealing with crisis pregnancy and challenging situations with regards to parenting and and stuff like that in Medina. Um, so uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, we're going to send out more information tomorrow online. We'll put it on our website about how to sign up for that, uh, whether you want to help donate ornaments, whether you want to go help decorate on the first or the second. Uh, we'll be sending out some more information this week, so stay tuned for that. Um, but that's going to be a good way, I think, a fun way to help support an important ministry in our community. Um, also, if you have ideas, we need to pick a theme for the tree. So if you have any bright ideas for a, a fun Weymouth Christmas tree theme, they gave us a list of suggested themes. We still need to pick one. Um, so unless I hear something better from someone else, I'm going to just pick one of those probably, and it might not be as fun, but uh, it's not going to be the Columbus crew. So sorry, Doug. Um, <laughs> uh, I just saw it. I just saw him out of the corner of my eye. I was like, I know where he's going with this. Um, uh, yeah. So if you have any ideas, feel free to, to come, share them with us, but we'll try and pick that early this week, send out more information. But I think that'll be a really uh, a good a good way to support that ministry. Um, and kind of along those lines, um, as we think about supporting a ministry like Oasis of Hope in our community, I think also as we uh, as we reflect soberly on you know the the tragic and the the, the horrific uh, events that have happened uh, in Israel this past week and the war in Gaza and these things happening. Um, with, with those two things on our mind, I thought it'd be appropriate to, to read a little bit more from Psalm 139 for us this morning before we move on to the pastoral prayer. Um, so we read the first 12 verses here of Psalm 139 at the start of the service, and uh, I thought it'd be helpful to just read the, the next three verses, Psalms uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, so allow me to read those for us, and then I have just a few comments, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray together. What David writes in Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And so what David is tapping into here in Psalm 139 is something that we see in the very beginning of the Bible. 
which when you open up the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, we discover that before uh, Scripture tells us who we are in Genesis 2, before it even tells us about our sin in Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that uh, in Genesis 1 that God is our creator, that he has fearfully and wonderfully made us. He has knitted together every part of his creation. And Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God made us, he made human beings in his image. And so as we think about life, as we think about human life, we can know that all human life is, is precious, is sacred, because it is made in the image of God. And so our calling then as a church is, is to praise God for his good creation, but it's also to participate with God in, in cherishing and protecting and nourishing the life that he's created, whether that life is inside the womb or, or outside the womb, whether that life is local or overseas. And so anytime life is lost, anytime death enters the picture, it's, it's tragic because that person was created in God's image. And so whether that life was lost in the womb or whether it was lost as a result of war and terrorism, it's, it's, it's utterly appropriate to weep with those who weep, to lament over the senseless loss of life. It's also appropriate as believers to engage the world from this conviction that all of life is precious because it is made in God's image. And so then, as believers, the way we serve our neighbors, the way we engage with culture, the way we vote, the way we mourn, the way we love our enemies, it should always be done out of the biblical conviction that everyone made in God's image is valuable, is precious, is important to God. So then as we navigate the grief here of a, of a fallen world, as we navigate the grief of a fallen world, let us pray together this morning because prayers is, is the, the best thing we can ever do as Christians. Let us pray together this morning to the God who searches us and who knows us, who is present, as David says, even in the darkest, most hopeless places, who is able to turn even the darkness to light because he sent his son, the light of the world, into the darkness of the grave to bring light and life even out of death. So in that hope, let us pray this morning for God to protect the unborn, to deliver the oppressed, to mend the broken, to pour out justice and peace, and to give his church uh, the wisdom and the humility to engage not just these issues, but to engage the image bearers behind these issues with the love and with the mercy of Christ. So with that in mind, please uh, pray with me. Merciful Father, we praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We praise you because you are a good creator who out of the abundance of your love chose to create human beings in your image. So help us to always uh, cherish, value, and respect life wherever we find it. Help us to wisely take whatever steps you would have us take in order to try and protect and preserve life, both life in the womb and outside of the womb. Help us to go together to places of death and brokenness with the life and the hope and the love of Christ. Help us to weep with those who weep. Give us a greater tenderness and conviction that all of life is precious because it is made in your image. And help us to act accordingly. In your mercy and justice, we ask you to deliver the poor and the oppressed, including the unborn and those who find themselves in desperate situations. 
bring comfort and peace to those who are mourning as a result of the horrors and tragedies in Israel and the war in Gaza this past week. Strengthen your church in these places and work through your people to bring light and hope into the darkness. And help us all in the midst of the the fear and the tragedy of these days. Help us to rest in the light and the hope of your sovereign presence and your abundant mercy. In a world of death, bring more people life in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In response, we'll continue our worship together and we'll stand and sing another song. So please stand with us.
All right, to pray with me. Father, we come to you today um, to worship you, Lord. Pray that, um, that we would quiet our own hearts and that we would be open to learn what you have to teach us, Lord. I pray that, um, that your message would be made clear to each and every single one of us here today. Lord, I pray, with, uh, I pray that you'd be with Pastor Chris as he comes to deliver your word, um, that you would just be with him and, uh, and allow his preparation to come to fruition. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, give him your peace and, and that you would just help us to focus in our hearts on you today, Lord. Pray all this in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you, AJ. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah, chapter 1. It is, it is our practice here as a church uh, to uh, go through books of the Bible together as we, as we preach, as we worship. Uh, so last week we uh, finished uh, going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this morning we are starting a new series here in the book of Jonah. Jonah is in the Old Testament as one of the 12 minor prophets. So it's one of those fun books to find. So no shame if you have to go to the table of contents. That's what it's there for. I had to do that a couple of times myself this week. Um, if you're looking for the book of Jonah, it's after the book of Obadiah. Uh, lots of people will name their kids Jonah. You don't hear a lot of people naming their kids Obadiah. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. I think Obadiah sounds like a pretty fun name. So if at any point of you have a son in the future, you're looking for a good name, and you're thinking, eh, Jonah, maybe, maybe go one book ahead and name him Obadiah. That'd be interesting. Um, so Jonah's after Obadiah. It is before the book of Micah. Um, just a couple of pages in the Old Testament. If you're looking in your Bibles, you can kind of, this general area here helps you find it, right? Um, Book of Jonah, it's part of a collection of, of prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, 12 minor prophets. These are shorter prophetic books, books of, of, of men who have been called by God to deliver his word to his people. And so this morning we will start a series, God willing, but the plan is for it to go about five or six weeks here uh, into, into the holidays, into the Christmas season. Um, we'll start with just the first three verses of Jonah this morning. Jonah chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 3. Um, so follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Please join me in prayer. Merciful Father, as we come to your word this morning, we admit our own inadequacies, our own blindness, our own inability to understand it ourselves. So help us, Lord. Reveal yourself to us in your word this morning. Show us more clearly who you are. Show us more clearly who we are. Show us more clearly, ultimately, uh, what you have done for us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, when you hear the name Jonah, uh, what is the first thing that you think of? Right? When you hear that name, when you think the story of Jonah, what's the first picture that pops into your head? It's a whale, right? Yeah, a giant fish, a whale, Jonah and the whale. This is, Jonah is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, largely because of that image, that, that scene, that account of uh, that time where Jonah is swallowed by a giant fish, swallowed by a whale, and then spat back out after three days. 
Right? You go to any children's classroom in any church, you open up any children's Bible, you plug in your VeggieTales DVD or whatever, and I guarantee you there is a picture of Jonah either getting swallowed by a whale or inside of the whale or getting spit out by the whale. That one's my favorite when he's thrown back up out of the whale, right? You look anywhere, it's there, right? Because this is a sensational image. This is an image from the story that gets tucked into our imaginations. To the point where when most people, uh, scholars especially, when they want to talk about the book of Jonah, the main thing they want to talk about is whether or not a, a miracle like this with the whale is even possible. But I have, I have news for you this morning as we start this series, and I'm not trying to burst any childhood bubbles or throw shade at any children's ministry decorators or children's Bible publishers, but the, the book of Jonah is not really a story about a giant fish. The book of Jonah, as we'll see as we go through the book, what we'll actually see, shockingly, is that in the grand scheme of things, the whale is actually one of the, the least sensational parts of the book of Jonah, one of the least sensational things about the story. In fact, the whale only pops up for a couple verses, maybe two or three verses in chapter two. It's just one part of a story that is filled with uh, shocking and surprising moments. It's one part of a story that never goes the way that we expect it to go because it has a message for us that is far more sensational, far more surprising than that of a man being swallowed by a, by a whale. See, at its core, the, the book of Jonah is a story about God's mercy, about God's mercy, about his compassion for those in need about his willingness to hold back what we deserve. The book of Jonah tells us that God's mercy is far more surprising and shocking and sensational than we ever imagined. And so the book of Jonah is not really a story about a giant. The book of Jonah is a story, it is a sensational story about the sensational mercy of God. The book of Jonah is a sensational story about the sensational mercy of God. And we'll see that this morning by answering three questions. First, we'll look at who, who was Jonah. Then secondly, what did God call Jonah to do? And then finally, how did Jonah respond? So this will take us through each of these three verses. First, who was Jonah? What did God call Jonah to do? How did Jonah respond? So first, let's look at verse one uh, to answer the question, who was Jonah? We're told in verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And so right away in this first verse, we're told the two main characters in this story. But before we answer the question, who is Jonah, it's important to see that uh, Jonah is not the first character named here. Before we're told about Jonah, we hear about the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And so the central actor in the story right away the, the one who is at the center of the narrative, who is moving things along. It's not ultimately Jonah. It's the Lord. The Lord. The Lord is the one who sends his word to Jonah, who calls him out, who oversees all the crazy events in Jonah's story. And he does so to teach us something about himself, about his character, about his call, about his shocking compassion. God is the main character in this story. And he is the one who sends his word to Jonah. But what then does the text tell us about this guy, about Jonah? Well, as we've seen, it tells us first that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. 
And when it says this, this is just this is phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a typical phrase we see in the Old Testament that is used to identify, to describe a prophet. A prophet. See, when the word of God comes to prophets in the Old Testament, what that means is that God is choosing that person to be his mouthpiece to his people. Jonah is identified here as a prophet, as a man who is chosen by God, whom God is going to use to speak his word. But as we're going to see, Jonah is not like any other prophet in the Old Testament. For starters, unlike other prophets like Isaiah or or Jeremiah, Jonah's uh, book doesn't really contain any any of his prophecies. You go to a book like Isaiah, and Isaiah is filled with all these prophecies from the prophet Isaiah. When you get to Jonah, we discover that there's really only one prophecy in the book. And it's just a five-word sermon that Jonah gives in chapter 3. The rest of the book is, it was more about what happens to Jonah than what Jonah has to say. And so we can say that the book of Jonah is a prophetic narrative. It is not mainly a collection of Jonah's prophecies. It is a narrative about Jonah. It is an account of what happens to him as a prophet. And so while there are moments of prophecy and poetry, particularly in chapter 2, the, the genre of the book is primarily narrative. And that's important to see because anytime we study the Bible, we want to remember the Bible is made up of lots of different books. And, and these books come in, in different forms and different literary styles and different genres. And so Jonah, while it has some prophetic language, some poetic language, the majority of it is a narrative. And so when you study a narrative book in the Bible like Jonah, you want to be looking out for certain things. You want to be looking out for who are the main characters. What is the conflict? What is the setting Are there any surprises in the story? Are there any contrasts between characters or between events in the story? Are there any parallels? These same things you learn in in high school English class can apply here as we're reading this this story, this this historical account, this historical narrative about uh, what God did in the life of Jonah. It's a narrative book. And so we see that there. Another thing that makes Jonah unique is is the, the scripture tells us that he is the son of Amittai. That's another good fun guy's name for you there, the son of Amittai. Now, we don't really know much about Jonah's dad, about this guy uh, named Amittai, but uh, the formulation of Jonah's name here is important. Jonah being called the son of Amittai is important because it connects us to the one other place in the Old Testament where Jonah himself is mentioned. It connects us to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25. 2 Kings is one of the historical books in the Old Testament, and in the book of 2 Kings, we're given the history of what we call the divided kingdom. At that point in Israel's uh, history in 2 Kings, the nation of Israel has been divided in two. There there is uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and there is the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 2 Kings 14, verse 23, we're introduced to this guy named Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, who he becomes the king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And verse 24 tells us that Jeroboam too did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So Jeroboam was not a good guy. He was not a good king of Israel. He led Israel into evil and into idolatry. But then we're told this in verse 25, that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from Lebohamah as far as the Sea of Arabat, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And listen to this. Which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. 
And so outside the book of Jonah, in the book of 2 Kings, the only other time that Jonah himself is mentioned in the Old Testament, outside of his book, is as a prophet to the kingdom of Israel during the reign of an evil king. And God uses Jonah not to speak against Jeroboam and all his evil. He uses Jonah uh, to announce that God is going to use this evil king to restore the borders of Israel, to reclaim territory for Israel that had been taken by their enemies. You see, even though Jeroboam was an evil king, God worked through his servant Jonah. He worked through Jeroboam to restore Israel's border. Why would God do that? Why would he do that? Well, verse 26 tells us, it says, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. You see, even though Israel is being ruled by an even king, even though they're being led into sin and idolatry, God in his mercy for the suffering Israelites and his compassion for them in their time of need, he uses the words of his servant Jonah to lead this evil king to restore some of their borders, to secure their safety. And God didn't do this because Jeroboam or even Jonah themselves were worthy of his intervention. God did it because of his own promise not to blot out the name of Israel from the world, not to completely destroy his people. God did this out of faithfulness to his own promises out of mercy to his own people, because this is who God is. He is faithful to his promises. He is merciful to his people, even when we are living in utter rebellion against him. Even when we chase after other idols, even when we fall into sin and weakness, he's still faithful to his promises. He's still uh, willing to carry out shocking and abundant mercy upon us. And the surprising mercy of God here in 2 Kings 14, it's also the key theme that we are going to see in the book of Jonah. Because at the heart of Jonah's story is a God who is shockingly merciful, even to his enemies, even to those who turn from him and live in cruelty and idolatry. And we see this then in, in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2, in what God calls Jonah to do. So who was Jonah? Secondly, what did God call Jonah to do? Because so far as we've been going along in the story, things have been pretty typical. Jonah's calling, the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. It sounds like the calling of most of the prophets in the Old Testament. But then in verse 2, the story takes a surprising turn. Now, I, I'm not somebody who loves surprises. Um, when I turned 25, uh, my wife, she threw me a surprise party. And so one moment I thought I was going to my parents' house and Shaker for dinner, and I'm walking in the house, and then I, I turn the corner into the living room, and, you know, I'm surprised by, like, everybody I knew at that time. And, and it was a great surprise. It just, it just took me a little bit to recover. And to this day, my family still gives me a hard time uh, about what a deer in the headlights I became in that moment because I just froze, right? Some people have flight. Some people have fright. Some people have freeze. I, I freeze. Um, so I froze in that moment. So I was like a deer in the headlights. Uh, and I still get a hard time for it, especially for my brother. Um, and if you're reading, uh, if you're an ancient Israelite who was reading Jonah chapter 1 for the first time, when you're going through verse 1 and you're hearing the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, that would, that would be like, you know, walking into your parents' house for dinner. 
That's pretty typical. That's pretty normal. So far, it sounds like a familiar story about God calling another prophet. But then you turn the corner into verse 2, and bam, you're hit with a surprise, the likes of which you've never seen before. Because in verse 2, God commands Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Do you see the surprise there in verse 2? Do you see the shock of that? Does that make sense to everybody? Do you get it? I don't see a lot of deer in the headlights out there, so maybe I should explain it a little bit more. Um, God calls Jonah to be his prophet, right? Which is pretty typical. He does it in a typical way. But, and typically, the prophets were used by God to speak his word to his people, to the Israelites, to call them out for their sin and for their idolatry. But what's striking, what's surprising about what God calls Jonah to do as a prophet is he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was not part of Israel. Nineveh was not part of the people of God. In fact, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And at that time, the Assyrian Empire was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the ancient world. At this point in Israel's history, the Assyrians, they, they weren't at war with Israel, but the Israelites were paying tribute to Assyria. And the threat of invasion from the Assyrians was a very real fear in Israel. These were not friendly neighbors. This was a powerful nation that was looming on Israel's borders. That was an existential threat to Israel itself. And yet God calls Jonah, a prophet from Israel, to go into the very heart of the Assyrian Empire and to preach there. And this is the first time in the Old Testament that we see God call a prophet to actually go into another nation to preach to people outside of God's uh, people, the Israelites. There have been times with other prophets where they've spoken against the other nations, they've called out the other nations, but never before has a prophet been sent directly out of Israel into the heart of their enemies. So this is surprising. This is shocking. And, and it's only ad what only adds to this is the fact that uh, the Assyrians were on record as being one of the cruelest nations that the world has ever seen. Tim Keller has a really good book on, uh, the bo on, on the book of Jonah. It's called Rediscovering Jonah, or it's called The Prodigal Prophet, depending on which edition you get. But listen to how Keller describes the Assyrians in his book, The Prodigal Prophet. And I apologize in advance for the, the brutal imagery here, so if there's any sensitive ears, you might uh, want to cover them. Uh, but Keller writes, he says, After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. That's who these guys are. These are the Ninevites that God is calling Jonah to go and preach against. These are the enemies at the border of Israel that are looming against them. And who does God call to cross this border, to go and preach to the heart of this terrorist state? He calls the prophet from 2 Kings 14, the guy whose main job was to help restore the nation of Israel's border. 
to see if there was ever a prophet in the Old Testament who who could be considered a nationalist, it would be Jonah. His entire ministry seems to be, have been based around securing the border of Israel against enemies like the Assyrians. And yet God calls Jonah to cross the border, to go and preach in the heart of his enemies, who, oh, by the way, just so happened to be one of the cruelest kingdoms in human history. And so do you see the shock of this? Do you see the surprise in this? Right away, this story is unlike any other prophetic narrative in the Bible. It is a story in which God chooses the the least likely messenger to go and preach to the most unexpected people. And this is not the only surprise that we are going to see in the book. Throughout this story, we are going to see surprise after surprise. We're going to see turns in the narrative that are meant to shock us, that are meant to get our attention. Because this book is a sensational story about the sensational mercy of God. So things like the call to Nineveh, the giant fish, the seemingly magic plant in chapter 4, all these elements of the story, they're meant to wake us up, to, to see God's mercy, to see how his grace and his love are far more shocking, far more sensational than, than we could ever imagine. We get so used to these ideas like God's grace and God's mercy in the church. And what happens when God's mercy comes to people we never, ever in a million years think would deserve it? What happens when God's mercy comes to our enemies? When it comes to those we think deserve to be destroyed? When it comes to those we would never want to see rescued or redeemed? The book of Jonah tells us that God's mercy is more sensational than we ever could imagine. This mercy comes even to the cruelest of his enemies. That even the utterly vile and corrupt can become objects of his pity. And we see this in the text and how God describes Nineveh. He calls it that great city. And this term will pop up a couple of times in the book. But this word great here in Hebrew can be translated as large. But in verse 2, the word can also be translated as important. As important. And surely Nineveh was important as the capital city of Assyria. But the way that God uses the word here, and the way he's going to use it again in chapter 4, it it clues us into the fact that Nineveh, this cruel, brutal city, Nineveh was not just an important city to the Assyrians. Nineveh was an important city to God. Even though the entire storyline of the Old Testament is focused largely on how God has created and called a people for himself and the Israelites, The book of Jonah shows us that God's heart is not just for the Israelites. His heart, his mercy is also uh, for his enemies. It is for the entire world. And so he tells Jonah to go and preach because the evil of the Ninevites has come up before him. The aroma of their cruelty, their brutality, their idolatry, it's risen before him. He sees the sin and the suffering that riddle the nation. But God doesn't go and destroy the Ninevites like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he calls a prophet to go and cry out against them, to do what prophets always do, which is to call people to repentance and faith in God. And so God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. But we're hit with another surprise in the text when we see in verse 3 how Jonah responds. So who was Jonah? What did God call Jonah to do? And then finally, how did Jonah respond? 
Now, so far this morning, we've used uh, words like surprising and sensational to describe the book of Jonah. But perhaps another word that we might use is satire. Satire. I don't mean that the book of Jonah isn't true, but what I mean is that there are points in the story of Jonah that almost seem satirical. They almost seem like they were written by sitcom writers. Right? My wife and I, we've been, uh, currently we've been re-watching back through The Office. We've been watching the show The Office. And if you've ever seen that show, then you know that in The Office, a lot of the humor comes from the fact that the boss in the show, Michael Scott, he typically does the exact opposite of what a good boss should do. Right? That's the whole premise of the show. That's where all the humor in the show comes from. Michael, he does these foolish things which are completely uh, a parody of what a good boss would do, a satire of what a good boss would do. And we all see it and we cringe at it or we laugh at it. His foolishness is played for laughs. But we can say that Jonah is the Michael Scott of prophets. He's the Michael Scott of prophets. Think about this. This book is filled with moments where Jonah the prophet, he does the exact opposite of what a good prophet would do. It's almost satirical. He's almost a parody of the prophets. But his actions aren't played for laughs. They aren't given to us for the sake of entertainment. His actions are meant to shock us, to make us curious, to make us wonder, why is Jonah responding that way? And to help us see that Jonah's response is actually a lot more relatable than we'd like to admit. And in verse 3 here, we have one of these Michael Scott moments. You could call it, right? He, even the language in, in verse 3 is meant to highlight for us Jonah's ludicrous response as a prophet. If you look at verse 2, it says, at verse 2, God says to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And then when you look at verse 3, we're told Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Right? You can almost see the comedy in the language here. God, he tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah does arise he follows step one, but then immediately he turns and goes in the wrong direction, right? He turns and goes in the complete opposite way that God wants him to go. And this is shocking because no other prophet in the Old Testament has disobeyed God's direct command like this. So again, we see it's almost like satire, like Jonah is a parody of the prophets. He's doing the opposite of what a good prophet would do. He rises to flee. And the narrator tells us that Jonah goes to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish here was a city that was about as far west from Israel as a person could possibly go. It was basically the edge of the world to the Israelites. Nineveh, likewise, was east of Israel. It was, it was east of the kingdom of Israel. And so when Jonah, when he, when he rises up to flee to Tarshish, he doesn't, just obey the, he doesn't just disobey the command of God. He flees and he goes about as far away as he possibly can to where God is calling him to go. He literally goes as far in the opposite direction to the very edge of the known world for the Israelites. In fact, the text tells us two times that what Jonah was actually trying to do was that he was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Again, here, this is almost comical. Jonah, in his distress at being called to go to Nineveh, he gets up, he goes in the complete opposite direction. He even tries to get away from the presence of God. But as we've already read this morning in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. The Bible makes clear that no matter where we go, God is present. He is sovereign. Even if we go to the uttermost parts of the sea, 
His sovereign hand is still in control. And so Jonah, he is, he's getting it all wrong. He disobeys God's command, God's command. He goes in the complete opposite direction. He thinks that maybe if he can get out of Israel, maybe if he can get away from God's people, then maybe God won't bother him anymore. Maybe God will choose another prophet to send to Nineveh. Maybe uh, he can get away from God himself. And at that, this point, it might be easy for us to judge Jonah, to laugh at him like we laugh at Michael Scott. But think about his situation. He's been called to do something that no other prophet has ever been called to do, to go into the heart of his unimaginably cruel enemies who pose an existential risk to his own people and to preach against them. Keller says that this would be like a Jewish rabbi in 1941 being called to go and preach in the heart of Nazi Germany. That's the situation here. And if you were in this kind of situation, how would you respond to that call? What would you do? How would you feel about the risk to your own life? How would you feel about the risk to the life of your own nation? How would you feel about the risk to your reputation, to your standing as a, as a prophet in the community? How would you feel about the risk to uh, God's promises, his promises to deliver his people and destroy their enemies? What would you think about the theological risk here, about trusting in a God who seemed all about protecting his covenant people, but now he's calling you to go and preach to their enemies? Think about this. How do you respond when God calls you to do something that you really don't want to do? How would you respond if God called you to do something that was really costly or risky, to cross a border that you would never want to cross? Maybe the border into another country, or maybe the border into your next-door neighbor's yard, or across the street to that person who has a, a different belief you do about politics or culture or faith. How would you feel when God calls you to cross that border, to do something you don't want to do, you never expected to, to be called to do? How would you respond? If we're honest, we have to admit that we're, we're more like Jonah than we want to believe. But as we go through the book, we'll see that there's an even deeper reason for Jonah's response here that goes beyond concerns for his own safety or the security of his nation. A deeper reason that's, that's hinted at here, but it becomes abundantly clear in chapter 4. And this reason is this. If Jonah goes up to preach against the Ninevites to fulfill his prophetic role to call out their sin, there's a chance that Nineveh could repent. There's a chance that Nineveh could turn away from their sin and turn to the Lord. There's a chance that Jonah's own words could turn his hated enemies to the very God he serves. A chance that God might forgive them. A chance that he might have mercy on them and not destroy them. After all, why would God send a prophet to preach to them if there wasn't a chance that they could change, that they could repent? And so Jonah, a prophet consumed with protecting his own people, he flees rather than give the Ninevites even the chance to repent. The mercy of God, it's too sensational for Jonah. The idea of his enemies being spared is too much for him. So he tries to get as far away from possible as this shocking God that he serves, from the shocking God that he serves. He abandons God's call. He turns his back on a lost people who are important to God. And so in Jonah's disobedience, 
What we are left with is we are left looking for a better prophet, for a perfect prophet. We are left looking for a better prophet, one who will obey the call of God to cross the border, to go to his enemies, even if it costs him his life. A prophet who will call even the most cruel, vile sinners to repentance and faith, who will give himself in sensational service to bring sensational sinners the sensational mercy of God. And thanks be to God, we have such a prophet. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is the the one who comes in and fulfills uh, what all the other prophets were called to do, to reveal God to us. As we also read in the the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the great prophet, is the ultimate prophet. But he's not just another one of the prophets to whom the word of the Lord comes. No, Jesus is himself the word of God. He is himself the word of the Lord who took on flesh, who came to dwell with us. He is the ultimate revelation of God to us. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet who perfectly obeyed the call of his father, not just to cross an earthly border, but to cross the ultimate border from heaven to earth, to go and bring God's mercy to his enemies who are lost in the cruelty and the brutality of our sin. And while Jonah tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, Jesus is himself the presence of God who came to dwell with us, who came to chase after us, who came not to preserve his life, but to lay down his life for us. And so when we see God's sensational mercy in Christ, his compassion for us in our need, in our sin, in our death, when we see how Christ obeyed the most impossible call to bear the most impossible burden for us, the burden of our sin and our death, when we see this, it frees us to live lives of sensational service for God. It frees us to do even the hardest things for him because he has already done the hardest thing for us. Because yes, we are more like Jonah than we'd care to admit. But when we look to Christ, the better Jonah, the ultimate prophet, when we believe this sensational story, when we receive his sensational mercy, we can find the freedom and the joy and the security to cross whatever borders God may have us cross for the sake of his glory and for the good even of our enemies. And that is a far more exciting story than a story about a giant fish. So let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, for the surprise of your word, for how at times we, uh, we read it and we're shocked and, and even confused by what you're doing. But we thank you that in your word you reveal to us your character, your compassion, your call. You reveal to us how uh, your mercy, your grace is, is far more 
than we ever thought it was. It's far greater, it's far more wonderful, it's far more shocking, far more life-changing than we ever could have imagined. So help us to rest in that mercy this morning, this mercy that has been poured out for us in your Son, in our Savior. Equip us with that mercy, build us up, uh, enliven us with that mercy and that love. Free us in the joy and the security of the gospel to go and cross whatever borders you would have us cross to share this love and this mercy with others, even our enemies, even those we disagree with, even those we have a hard time loving. Lord, show us how you've done this for us ultimately in Christ and help us to do this for others, for your glory, for the good of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, stand and sing one final song together.
Amen. We'll, we'll go from here with a word of benediction. Don't forget to sign up for uh, Trunk or Treat if you'd like, and, and we'd love to, to stick around, have some coffee, talk, answer any questions, pray with you, whatever might be helpful. Uh, feel free to reach out. But as we go, let's go with these words from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.